Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going over a lot of the resources that we use when it comes to the TV business, whether it's finding out about events, connecting with people, staying in touch, or just being aware of everything about the TV industry. Yeah, these are all resources and things that we have used and can kind of personally recommend, or at least have had someone close to us uh, highly vouch for it. So these can be kind of evergreen resources you can go back to whenever you need them to understand more about the TV industry. And let's get right to it. We are going to start with one of the most common questions that we get over and over again, which is, what books should I be reading to learn about the business of television? A lot of people are familiar with books about the craft of TV writing and how you can learn structure and story and all that kind of thing. But one of the most overlooked things is perhaps understanding the business itself. So a couple of the books that we really like uh, in terms of the TV industry are Small Screen Big Picture by Chad Gervich, which really lays out, you know, it's, it's a little older now, maybe like 10 years old or something. A lot of the information is kind of from right around the time of the last big writer strike. However, it's still fairly relevant and it still really breaks down what is the difference between a production company and a network and a studio? How do people make money off of TV shows? What is the role of an agent and a manager and the writers and producers and all that kind of thing? How it all fits together in pieces of a puzzle? Absolutely. And I think that regardless of how outdated or not outdated the business side is, I still feel like a lot of the content in that book is still relevant as a, as a writer, as a nascent writer in this industry, uh, because it tackles a lot of elements regarding the politics of those relationships and how you should position yourself within the dynamic of whether it's the studio, the network, the production companies, your agents, whatever uh, the case may be, and uh, how you can influence your career, especially when you're starting out. And there's another book from the same writer, Chad Gervich, which goes into more detail on that relationship between representatives and writers, and it's called Managing Your Agent. And so that is a really great insight into either for those of you who haven't worked with a rep before and are wondering how that relationship actually works and what you need to be doing to get yourself one and be successful in that way, or even those of you who are already reps and you want to know how to get the most out of your representatives, I think it's a really great detailed instruction on that. Absolutely. I would go on record right now to say that this is probably the best resource that currently exists in terms of how to manage that agent slash writer relationship uh, from the perspective of a writer. It really goes into detail of what your agent and sometimes your manager is doing on a month-to-month basis, whether it's staffing season, development season, pitching season, as well as how you can help yourself discuss and communicate with that rep that uh, agent, that manager regarding your wants and needs and how to interact with them. Because I think a lot of people wonder, oh, why isn't my rep getting back to me on this project? Or what is my rep doing right now? Or how should I tell them that I want to write this different project, but it doesn't quite fit with this other thing I wrote? All those different questions are answered in this book. And it's really interesting to look at that relationship. Yeah. I think unless you've worked inside an agency, it's sometimes a little bit mystifying as to what goes on there and how it all kind of works aside from just getting new jobs. So this is a really good way to just even understand what, you know, their staffing meetings are like and what covering agents are and all that sort of thing. So definitely check that one out. 
What about another book regarding your career as a writer in this industry? Well, one of the first books I read right before moving to LA was called Hollywood Game Plan by Carol Kirshner, who, uh, as you may know, is involved in the showrunner training program. And I believe she works pretty closely with CBS as well. And she's also been an executive for many years. And what Carol does is actually outline in very clear steps the kind of thing that we're trying to do with this podcast in the early stages, which is how do I even move to LA? Where should I live? How do I get to meet people? How do I start writing and putting it out there. It's, it's a very bare bones idea of literally the practical steps of breaking into the industry. And I think that very few books have kind of taken that bare bones approach to it, which is what I appreciated about it. I feel like a lot of people are afraid of the more esoterical books regarding your career. And there's a lot of questions about how relevant it is to get advice about how to behave, generally speaking. But a lot of the content of that book, and I know uh, a lot of the books that we're talking about in this episode are very practical and uh, give you steps on uh, managing your career. And I think those are the things that a lot of people wonder about and ask themselves about because it feels a lot like uh, most of it is out of your control. And I feel like a lot of those books that we're talking about here uh, bring that element of control back to you and uh, give you actual steps in terms of what you should be doing. Right. There are definitely things that you should and shouldn't do when it comes to approaching your career. And this is just a helpful guideline. You don't have to take on a new personality or something. That's not what they're giving to you. It's just kind of general guidelines about how stuff works. Speaking of which, what about more of the business side? Yeah. So there's one book that I mentioned a long time ago that is called This Business of Television by Howard Blumenthal. And this is arguably the most reference heavy book of this entire list because it really is a huge in-depth book, I think it's about 600 to 800 pages, look at this business of television from a really scholarly and educational perspective, because the book really digs into the minutiae of how television, not just as an industry works, but really on a system basis. For example, the FCC, how the different networks are regulated, or how production interfaces with the networks or the studios and the writers. It's much less practical than anything we've talked about so far. However, especially if you're interested in all the politicking aspect and sort of like the minutiae of how TV as a medium works and as a business works. I think that's probably the best book you can uh, get your hands on. Now, it's not a page turner. It is pretty dry and and very specific, but I think it's still a great reference. Now, a caveat to everything I just said, it is a little bit, I think it's now 15 years old or maybe 10 years old. So it is not up to date to the shift uh, towards OTTs and non-linear television. But when it comes to linear television and the classical uh, network system, I think it's a great reference book. Yeah. Speaking of reference books, if you are interested in writing for animation or working in animation in any way, there's a great book that was recommended to me by my friend Stephen Darren said, who we've had on the podcast before talking about kids animation. And this book is called Producing Animation by Catherine Winder and Zara Dalatabadi. And this actually goes into a ton of detail about the actual animation production pipeline. Like how do you go from those initial concept sketches to renders and to all of the other stuff that, you know, is involved in actually churning out an animated product 12 to 18 months later. So, you know, I think that that's super useful for those of you to know who want to work in the animation space, because it's not the same as being a live action writer who gets to go to set and watch humans do it. Uh, There's a lot of intricate steps and processes like voice records and scratch tracks and all that kind of stuff that is useful for you to at least have a basic understanding of. Well, to that idea of production, another book that I wanted to recommend a lot is The One Hour Drama Producing Episodic Television, and it was written by Robert DelVal. And this book covers a ton about producing an hour of television, including uh, charts, scripts, excerpts, forms, a glossary of industry terms, and a lot more content. It's actually one of the best 
best practical books about the business I've ever read, especially uh, if you are in the one hour slash drama space. It's an awesome reference. Uh, Robert, the author of this book, was a producer and a line producer and a UPM on a ton of shows, all the Alan Ball shows, Sex Feet Under, True Blood. I think uh, his most recent shows were Roswell, the new Roswell, Westworld, Glee. I mean, he's been on a ton, ton of shows. And this is a huge book that not many people know about. I think it only has a few ratings on Amazon. I got it a few years ago and it's really fantastic to look at really the practical aspect of producing an episode of television from the script all the way to post. Many of you will be taking the assistant track on your way up to becoming a writer in TV, and it's useful to have an overall knowledge of the production process because otherwise you're just going to be thrown into the deep end and having to figure out what is a one-liner and a day out of days and and what's a script supervisor doing, all that kind of thing. Whereas if you have uh, this kind of overview of it before you go in, it's not going to only help you uh, in your assistant work, but it will help you as a writer later on. Yeah, I'm not going to even limit this to assistant. I feel like you're totally right about the assistant track. I would also urge people who are newly staffed on the show to read this book, or whether it's the animation book or the one hour book or whatever equivalent there is for a live action comedy, because when you're in that staff writer position, hopefully you're going to be put in a position where they will be giving you a script. And so it's very important for you to understand the practicalities and the, the realistic uh, approach to writing a script and what is expected of you, uh, not just as a producer, obviously, because you're just a staff writer at that point, but in terms of navigating those different steps and, and being aware of what that script is going to look down the road. What are some of the books about the business side of the industry? Well, there's a couple more books. The first big book about the industry that is more of an entertaining slash crying in your pillow kind of read <laughs> is uh, the book Desperate Networks. And uh, that book chronicles the way a bunch of classic shows, whether it's Survivor, Lost, uh, Friends, Seinfeld, a bunch of those classic shows made it to air and how almost impossible it was for them to get on the air. And it's kind of a crazy trauma <laughs> in, mm -hmm. uh, in a few chapters, especially if you're interested in TV, which hopefully you are if you're listening to this podcast and want to be a TV writer. This is a great history book in terms of the behind the scenes drama that goes with executives and producers to get those shows on the air. Are there any books on more of like the networking social side of the industry? Yeah, uh, this is something that we're going to talk a little bit uh, later on in this podcast. But the one thing that I did want to bring in terms of the books about networking is this book called Make Your Contacts Count by Ann Baber and Lynn Wayman. And uh, this is a book that I mentioned all the way back in our PT05 episode, which was our networking 101 episode. And essentially, it is a book that gives you an awesome overview on, well, how to network and how to network in an efficient way. And I know it's it's going to sound weird because uh, social cues should be evident to everyone, but it's not about just social cues. It's about bringing something worthwhile to, uh, let's say, a mixer or an event you're at and uh, engaging in conversations and responding to those conversations and then leading it in a way that perhaps after the interaction has ended, you have a way or an element to follow up on with that person and, uh, and engage in a real conversation with them, which will hopefully lead into a relationship down the road. Right. It might seem weird to some people to be reading a book that tells you how to be human or how to interact <laughs> in social situations. But, you know, you'd be surprised the kind of you know, faux pas you might be making without knowing it. Or, you know, some people just aren't very good in those kind of mixer situations and they get very anxious. And so it helps to have a bit of a, a guide to that. Yeah, it's not just about the social awkwardness, which I mean, I feel like especially if you're a TV writer, a lot of people are more introverted. So that's definitely an awkward thing. But beyond that, I feel like it's more about cultivating your network, generally speaking, not just a, on a practical level and event basis, which that is also what this book is for, but the tools that you need to leverage the relationship that you have to uh, push you further in a very productive way for you as a writer.
All right, let's move on to some apps and softwares that we use on the TV business or networking or different tools that we use. What software do you like to use? So one of the most basic ones, which is free and available to everyone, is the Google suite of you know software that includes stuff like documents and sheets and all of that good stuff that you know we use and are able to share and collaborate with people on. And what I like to use this for when it comes to more of the business side and the networking side is creating tracking documents. Now, if you've ever worked a sort of an assistant job for someone like a manager or an agent or a production company, this will be quite uh, common to you, but it's useful to have one for yourself as well. And what you can do with that is basically create a spreadsheet of people that you have met with, whether that is just you as a person out there networking in the world, in the industry, or specifically, say, as a writer with executives or producers or showrunners or other writers or whatever that you have taken meetings with. And you can put down the date that that happened. You can make notes about whether you know they had read a particular piece of material of yours, what their response to it was, um, maybe dates you should follow up if you submitted something to them and you're waiting to hear back on it. Even just little notes uh, about what you found out in the meeting about their company or about them or things like that so that you can really keep a good record of everyone that you have known and met and when you should follow up and and check in and hang out with them again sometime yeah it's uh, also a great tool for the big brother fantasy league that uh, i have uh, in terms of the scoring system and keeping track of who's in the lead i also use google sheets for different things uh the one tool that's similar to google sheets and maybe a little bit more advanced than it is something new called Airtable. And so Airtable is a web app that uh, the best uh, description would be a crossover between a spreadsheet and a database. And so on top of it being a spreadsheet, it gives you different kinds of fields that you can enter information in, whether it's like a checkbox or just the classic phone number or a drop-down list. So you have different ways of interacting with the different elements in that spreadsheet. Uh, I think those spreadsheets are a great way of organizing that kind of information, especially when you have a lot of contacts. It's very useful to keep track of, you know, a list of things of, oh, uh, these people I've worked on X shows. And then at some point you are going to go, uh, once that database is built, you can go back and let's say who has worked on American Horror Story. And you click on American Horror Story and it displays all the writers that you know who've worked on that show if you need a connection to someone else. Uh, now, obviously inputting that information whether it's on Google Sheets, on Airtable, or another software that you use will take a while. But I think it's the kind of work that is worth putting in, especially when you're starting out and you're building those resources and that networking and those connections. It's very important to understand how to navigate them and sort of to see how everybody connects on a macro level. And to that idea, you may be wondering, okay, well, I'm out meeting those people at a mixer. How do I retain that information? And one of the best tools that I have to not only maintain the, the contacts, but also retain that information is a contact management software. This is another thing that I brought up in another episode of the podcast, but it's something called Full Contact. I think now it's called Contacts Plus. It's evolved. I'm sure there's a iOS version of it, but essentially it's like a contact management app that you have on your phone. And then uh, when they put in your info, you can also add whatever kind of notes you want, whether it's where and when you met that person, common interests or topics of uh, discussions that you've had things I can follow up on uh, towards them or different mutual connections, any kind of references, because six months down the line, you're probably not going to be remembering the details of this conversation that you are just having now. So it's a great way to like remember those things and then noting down and then putting them in whatever database you use and retain that information. Yeah, I guess on a much simpler level, I always make sure to kind of add people to just like my little Apple contacts thing on my phone. And, you know, they always give you a little space for kind of like the company of the person or whatever. And then I might just write down, you know, making sure to include as much information as I can about where they worked or their phone number, email, Twitter, whatever it happens 
happens to be. It's not quite as much of a fully integrated system as what you got going on there. <laughs> well, I'm, I may be overselling my system. I just like to be thorough when it comes to specific people that matter to me. And uh, again, when you're building that relationship, it's a small industry at the end of the day. So it's interesting to know, oh, this person knows this person. So if I ever want to get a, a reach to that other person, then I already know someone who can connect me to them. It's sort of like doing the research or the work beforehand, as opposed to like waiting until uh, whenever you need it. But uh, what about scheduling? Because we all have uh, busy schedules, whether it's mixers, uh, drinks. I'm sure you are busy uh, planning uh, your wedding. You've got a bunch of things to do. So how do you schedule things? Yeah, I mean, so for the longest time, I had just been using kind of the, the Apple calendar thing, which is fine. Uh, you know, it does the job. I'll put stuff down on my calendar, be able to check on that, and you can set reminders and whatever. But just recently, I've started using this program called Team Week, which I'd heard about from somebody, perhaps you or, or another friend. And what that allows you to do is kind of create a much more visually interesting calendar for yourself with different kind of color-coded areas. And you can kind of have these like parallel timelines because you can create like tasks or projects and separate things. So some of it I I use for is basically kind of scheduling my writing sessions or when different projects are due or things like that. And then other ones, you know, I can still put stuff on there like drinks or whatever it happens to be, but keeping them in basically little separate lanes so that it's not all just blurring onto each other on my calendar and uh, me trying to sort it out myself. I can kind of like click through individually on each one. Um, And that's just helped me kind of differentiate what I need to be doing, especially when a lot of things are happening simultaneously or over a longer period. I personally don't use uh, Team Week, even though I, I looked into it a little bit and, and I may still use it. I sort of use a combination of Google Calendar and uh, another app software that's called uh, Trello. That's a to-do list app. And uh, I feel like both Team Week, Trello, and a bunch of the other uh, softwares that we will mention later on in this episode all have a crossover with the business side, not just in terms of the TV business, but just businesses in general. A lot of the tools that we are referencing are used by companies around the country and the world. So I think that's kind of how you should think of your career in a way, because you're your own business person, your own CEO of your own career. So that's why we're recommending all those sort of like business related apps that may seem a little bit overwhelming to some people. But the reality is that you have to manage your own time as if it's your own business, because as a writer, you are your own business. I mean, literally some people incorporate their people who are LLCs. So that's kind of how I think of it. I think Nick also thinks of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I would argue that, especially as a TV writer, when you're moving from project to project. And as a screenwriter, you are your own business and your own CEO. In terms of communication, a lot of the back and forth between people who are setting up uh, drinks or meetings or whatever it happens to be is over email. It's, you know, some of it, I guess, has moved on to messenger services and whatever. But by and large, this is the most formal and appropriate way to go about it. Most people are using something like uh, a Gmail um, just to shoot stuff back and forth. And there are, of course, uh, little applications within that where you can kind of tag things and color code things and move them into boxes and folders, which helps really organize your inbox. But is there anything else in that that you've been able to like innovate with? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not a uh, zero inbox kind of guy. I've got a bunch of emails in my inbox. Uh, so that's never been a, an appeal uh, to me. Uh, however, there was one tool that I've been using and I feel like you are also used it. It's called Boomerang mm-hmm. and it's a great way of scheduling emails in the future. So you can sort of write that email now when you feel like it and then you can boomerang it to later. And the other uh, great tool is not just scheduling your email for later, but also boomeranging 
an existing email for later. So for example, you just received uh, an email about a draft that you don't want to deal with until next week. Well, you can click on the boomerang button and then snooze it for a whole week. And then it will reappear as if you just received it a week later, whenever you want to deal with it. Uh, now, I will mention that very recently, Gmail and Google integrated a lot of those scheduling tools within their own Gmail. So you don't even have to use Boomerang now for a lot of box mails. For example, the scheduling tools, I have it in uh, most of my Gmail accounts. I don't know if you have it. Yeah, no, I, I, maybe I didn't even notice that they'd introduced their own because I'm so used to using Boomerang. One thing I did notice, and I don't know whether it is Gmail or Boomerang, but there are now, if you know, either someone has sent me an email that I haven't replied to, or I've sent someone else an email that they haven't replied to for say three days or five days, they will kind of bring it automatically up to the top of your inbox and be like three days ago, like, do you need to respond to this and remind you about that, which can be really helpful sometimes if it slips your mind. Yeah, that is a, a Gmail a function that I, I do love. Now, now, uh, in terms of other communication tools that are worth mentioning or being aware of, there are a couple of big players in terms of group texting and group messaging and, and group conversations. The two main ones that I can think of in terms of uh, office uses are Slack and Discord. Now, Discord, if you are a video game player, then you probably know Discord as some <laughs> kind of video game related tool, but Discord is very much used in a lot of places as is Slack in terms of managing uh, conversations and chats between people because both of them offer voice chats as well as different channels where you can map out different projects or information and uh, whether you want to segregate different people based on their levels or uh, other ways. Those tools are worth looking into, especially if you're in something like a writing group or other kinds of group-related activities. It's worth looking into. Oh yeah, those are great. I especially have used Slack for a very long time. I've used it for everything from kind of workflow and project tracking when I was writing with my writing partner or, you know, we, I think we started one for the podcast, mm. but we haven't used it in a long time, but uh, I use one for my satire website, Salmon Pages, and it is just a really good way to keep everything in one place and not have to be searching back through all of your text messages or Facebook messages about stuff. You can kind of post links, you can stick things there. And I just recently started using Discord more so for other stuff like there, uh, I'm like a Patreon supporter for a Magic the Gathering podcast, and they have a Discord that you get access to for kind of more exclusive stuff there. Or there's a Final Space one for fans of Final Space. And so I'll check in on that and see what people are talking about the episodes, mm. whatever it happens to be. So yeah, they're both uh, great programs. Maybe one day we'll have a paper team Discord. Maybe. Who knows? The other apps that, well, I guess they're apps slash software, I'm not quite sure where they live, but were services that uh, at least internationally are worth mentioning are WhatsApp and Line. Now, a lot of people know WhatsApp. I'm personally not a huge fan of WhatsApp. Uh, one of the main reasons is it's a Facebook company. So I'm not a huge fan of Facebook, so I try to avoid Facebook-related content, even though some of it can't be avoided. But the other thing is Line is very used in Asia. Uh, so for example, if you watch a little show called Terrace House on Netflix, you will realize that a lot of them talk about Line because it's very much used in, uh, in Japan and China and uh, all those different places. It's essentially a better version of WhatsApp for my money because, well, it's free. It also has amazing desktop apps, whether you're on a Mac or a PC, you can do a lot more stuff than the WhatsApp app. I think the WhatsApp app is very linear. You can just like call, text, and that's about it. You can't really do much other activities, whereas Line has a ton more features and it's just better. It's secured. I think it's end-to-end -end encryption, which WhatsApp recently introduced, but again, it's Facebook, so I don't really trust their security <laughs> yeah, there. Exactly. So anyway, the Line is something that not many people in America are used to right now, but it's something that I've been 
using with a lot of my friends internationally. Yeah. Another one that I've used a little bit is WeChat, uh, which I believe is also pretty popular in China, particularly. <laughs> I use it to talk to my dad because he doesn't use Facebook and he's in China a lot because my stepmom's from there. So that's something that they use. And it's also a lot, it's fairly common in China for people to send voice clip messages to each other instead of texting. That's like their thing. And so like that, my dad basically does that. He records voice messages and sends them to me on that. And I listen back to it through that. So I, I don't know if that's helpful for people in terms of writing business, but there are different options out there. Yeah, that's interesting. One last tool I'll mention is Google Voice, which may or may not disappear because Google, for some reason, they, they create those services that people really enjoy and then they take them away without <laughs> any reason. And Google Reader is a classic example of that. But Google Voice, I've used Google Voice since moving to the US. So that was around like 2010. And essentially, it's a phone number that you create and then you can route all your different phone numbers, whether it's your mobile phone, your office phone. I don't know how many people will still have desk phones, but nonetheless, you can route all of them into the one number and then you can direct sort of where, which phone is going to ring based on who calls. And it's a great thing if, uh, let's say you live in an apartment in LA and uh, they require that their ringer in the apartment building needs to have a specific uh, area code for some reason instead of your phone number. And you can uh, sort of create a Google voice number that's just for that number. Yeah. A real estate company did the same thing for our call box. So uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah, you're already using it with you know it or not. <laughs> so we've covered a lot of uh, communication software, but what about stuff that's more in the vein of productivity? Yeah. So this is a little bit more of a, your mileage may vary kind of app, but I definitely recommend having some kind of text to voice app on your phone and your computer. So for example, I use something called voice allowed reader for my Android phone. And uh, this might be also a little bit more craft related, uh, but I use it a lot for productivity. So let's say you are on a show and you have a decently long commute. Uh, you can obviously listen to our podcast on the way over to your job. Let's say you also got a bunch of writer's room notes or different kinds of text related content that you need to consume, but it was really late last night. So you woke up really late the morning of, and so now you have to play catch up. Well, you can plug those PDFs and text into the app and have the app read it to you on your commute over. Now it doesn't even have to be notes. It can also be scripts and you can assign voices. It's kind of like having a mini table read in your car, especially since digital voices have come a long way since the robotic Microsoft ones of uh, 10 to 15 years ago. Obviously, it's not as good as reading the script yourself, but it's great in a pinch to consume something uh, on your way over to somewhere else or even while doing chores. It's kind of like when when are you listening to podcasts? Well, instead of listening to podcasts, besides ours, obviously, <laughs> uh, you can read or listen to scripts that you already have on your computer, but read to you. Maybe you can put like a beat or some music behind it too. Mm. And it'll be kind of like a freestyle room notes song that's being uh, sung to you as you drive to work. <laughs> I love that idea. I'll do uh, both. <laughs> yes. No, I have also not so much the having stuff read to me, but I've found recently that I really enjoyed instead of listening to podcasts or music, just kind of like driving silently and brainstorming stuff for my projects and, and the stuff that I want to write uh, in my head as I'm driving and, you know, using those couple of minutes here and there as you're stopped at a red light or whatever to be thinking about your, your stuff. And then when I want to take down notes from that, obviously I can't start texting or writing while I'm driving. So I, unfortunately I've been using Siri to try to take notes, which is not great. She does not have great <laughs> voice recognition. Uh, and often I have to go in and try to decipher the notes that I've made, but maybe I should be looking into some other software that will have a better uh, voice recognition for that. But it's a good way to, to hands-free make notes and be writing and being productive while you're driving. If I were to do something similar, it would be to just record my voice altogether. And I guess it is consuming to then re-listen to a recording, but I'm sure there's apps, I haven't really looked too deep, but they just came to mind, but I'm sure there's an app somewhere that can transcribe what you said, especially 
especially if it's like small clips of voice. There's a lot of machine learning uh, tools online that are relatively cheap for that, especially if it's like a one or two minute clip. I'm sure they can do that for like cents. So worth looking into. Uh, what other note software do you use? I often just kind of keep notes on the Apple Notes basic thing that comes with all uh, iPhones and MacBooks and whatever, because it is kind of uh, integrated and I can open it up and type into stuff on my laptop and then it'll appear on my phone later, which is nice. It doesn't have the most features, but uh, it's simple and it gets the job done. When I had an Android phone, I think I used something called Evernote. Uh, So things like that, where you don't have to be transferring notes across from one thing to another is always really helpful. Yeah, definitely. My, I I didn't really, I never really got into Evernote. I personally use Google Keep in terms of notes, especially because it has a a small amount of, it, it does have limited functions, but it has a lot of great limited functions, uh, whether it's a checklist, audio recordings, notes, color coding. So that's one of the biggest note-taking apps that I use on my phone. On my computer, honestly, it's very low-key. I, I just use Notepad. And then uh, if my computer crashes, I lose all that content, and then I <laughs> cry myself to sleep. Yeah, but I uh, know I basically just do a very simple thing and create different subfolders within the notes thing for, say, writing, and then a different one for each project or whatever it happens to be, in the same way you would do with like desktop folders on your computer just so I can kind of not just have a giant line of of notes in one thing. And one last app that you will probably need in this business is Venmo, because every brunch that you take is going to be split between people. You're going to need something to uh, pay someone back. If you don't have cash, nobody carries cash anymore. So Venmo is kind of the app that everybody uses in July 2019. Who knows in 10 years uh, who's <laughs> going to be using what? But Yeah, it's one of those things that it's very common here in the States, and I think it's, it's not really either available or widely used outside of that, because I'll have Australian friends come over be like, what the hell's Venmo? So, uh, but everybody here uses it. It's a very yeah. LA thing. Absolutely. So what are some, I guess, hardware or, or physical objects or tools that we kind of use to help with the business of writing? Hmm, interesting. Physical tools I use in the business of writing. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is just what do you bring to a mixer? What things are going to be useful to you when you're meeting people? The first thing that a lot of people are going to think of is obviously business cards. I'm on the fence about the need of a business card in this day and age when you're meeting people, especially because everybody has a phone now and you can just trade numbers. But business cards can be a great tool to be remembered by if you have like an interesting business card or if there's an actual business reason why you're giving it to them. In terms of uh, places where I bought business cards, obviously Vistaprint is a classic one. I think we even printed our own uh, paper team business cards through Vistaprint, relatively inexpensive service that produces decent quality cards. Yeah. And I think you can even get like a sample of X amount for free, or you kind of get like a, a good cheap deal for your first buy of 50 or hundred business cards or whatever. So it's something that a lot of people do. Another one that I've used before for some slightly nicer business cards when I was a creative executive and our company wanted to look a little bit more professional, there's a website called moo.com. That's M-O-O.com. They kind of give you a few more options in terms of like uh, the thickness of the card or the rounding of the edges or like a glossier or matte finish. And it's just a sort of a nicer print quality, although it does cost a bit more. Yeah, uh, I believe it also offers square cards, which are interesting. I, I like the idea of doing something a little bit different, uh, not just to stand out, but to be remembered by at some point 
uh, especially when you're going through your business cards, I feel like something that stands out is more interesting than just a generic business card. And to that point, I think uh, an interesting thing to look into is stickers. I'm a big fan of stickers. We printed stickers for Paper Team, which if you go to our mixers or if you're a Patreon supporters, then you already know and love our stickers. And uh, we buy ours at Sticker Mule, which has really cheap prices, honestly, for the quality of the work. And so uh, I don't necessarily recommend printing your business card on a sticker, but it could be a move. I don't know what you'd be doing it, doing with it, but there's definitely interesting ways of uh, sort of positioning yourself as a creative. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about those is you can put them on the deck of your skateboard or on your binder <laughs> for school. Uh, <laughs> or in the back of your MacBook or your laptop. I That's guess. where people put their sticker. Hey, listen, <laughs> our mentee Paul has a paper team sticker on uh, the back of his laptop. And I'm pretty sure that's what got him staffed. I think that's exactly <laughs> what happened. They saw it and they were like, this guy knows about TV writing. There you go. Yeah. So stickers, <laughs> paper team stickers. That's where we're going. <laughs> All right, let's continue in terms of uh, maybe not hardware, but things that you should be doing at a mixer and uh, different advice. The first thing uh, that we want to point out is uh, hygiene, right? Because you got to wash yourself, you got to clean yourself, <laughs> you got to be smelling nice. And honestly, I know it sounds like a joke, but I do have to emphasize, please wear a deodorant when you go out to mixers. Yeah. I mean, it sounds obvious, but sometimes you have like a really long day at work. You Maybe you're a PA or something. You've been running around on, on runs and moving heavy boxes and uh, you've been sweating through your clothes all day or whatever. Just keep some deodorant with you in your bag. Or maybe even if you know you're going out to a mixer later, bring a change of shirt or clothes or whatever it happens to be. It's just a simple thing, but you really can't undervalue Absolutely. <laughs> uh, being uh, professional and presentable. Yeah. And that goes back to sort of how first impressions matter because if you're sort of the smelly guy or smelly gal in the mixer, then that's a terrible first impression. That's not what you want to be remembered by. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't cost you much to still, like you said, like have a deodorant in your car or a change of clothes. Uh, it's not a huge deal to do that. Yes. And brush your teeth and floss. Of course. Uh, speaking of uh, sort of this sort of stuff, appropriate clothing is useful to have a couple of items in your wardrobe. Uh, you know, you might just have a, an entire Batman closet of uh, black band t-shirts and ripped jeans, but it's probably a good idea to have a couple of button up shirts, whether they're long sleeve or, or short sleeve, maybe just like a sports jacket, like a nicer pair of pants or whatever, because depending on the event and the venue and who you're meeting and where you may want to dress up a little. Now you never really want to go all out and wear a crazy like three-piece suit or something to like a networking <laughs> drinks or a mixer you're gonna you know unless you're coming straight from working in an agency or whatever but you know occasionally if it's a it's a nicer event at like you know a hotel lobby or even let's say you're going down to comic-con you're trying to get into the ew party or whatever you don't want to look like a schlub and they're <laughs> going to kick you out and not let you in yeah that's the classic thing of a played by ear situation where like you said if you're going to like a fancy party you do want to wear at least a button-up shirt now, if it's more casual mixer between writer friends at a bar, I mean, I feel like a nice t-shirt and a jacket or something is perfectly fine. Obviously, we're talking about guys here. We don't really have any personal advice for women in this industry, but I'm sure there's a ton of advice online in terms of the dress code, the difference between business casual versus a very casual. Usually, if it's like a mixer between friends, it can be casual enough that you're going to wear a t-shirt and invest, and that's fine. But if it's more of a party or you're meeting maybe another writer at a place, that you don't know and it's sort of like a first impression kind of thing, then it doesn't hurt to put on a shirt, like a nice shirt. Now, it doesn't mean you got to bring a tie, but 
You gotta right. look nice. Yeah, I think it's it's equally possible to be underdressed or overdressed. So just kind of uh, play it by ear and, and use your common sense. And to that idea, if you're going in for a meeting, then more than likely you should be in that middle tier where it's, you know, it could be a nice shirt, but not an overly nice shirt. Because uh, I think a lot of executives still want to see that you're a writer, you're not an executive. So I think visually does make an impression if you're sort of overdressed in that capacity. Uh, because I think a lot of people sort of like go overkill and do the classic thing of like, you know, what if I dressed uh, for the job I want? But like the job you want is like a writer in their conference room and uh, it's a bunch of people in like shorts and t-shirts probably uh, when they're actually working. So that's not really the kind of outfit that you should be wearing in, in meetings. Exactly. I mean, you might honestly be better off wearing something that is very representative and expressive of you if you like to wear crazy colors or like nerdy kind of stuff attached to your bag or whatever, then that kind of shows them you and makes you more memorable. And of course, the last business hardware that no one can forget is the business horn. Now, everyone's got one of these. They're in the back of your closet. It's like an ivory ox horn that has been encrusted with jewels. And then you, know, you bring it out and then you just blow into it loudly uh, to announce that you're here to do business. Everybody uh -huh. does this at mixers, right? No, I think that's called a shofar in a synagogue at the end of Yom Kippur. That's, what, uh, okay. <laughs> that's what it is. That's not a business horn. Man, do you I, use it for other things? I guess I should stop blowing my horn when I go into a mixers. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> We're a PG podcast here. <laughs> Let's not go overboard. Now let's take a look at some websites. I know we've talked about apps and software, but these are, you know, www.websites that we use when it comes to the business, mixers, uh, contacts, staying in touch, all those different things. And the first two that we have to bring up, obviously, are Facebook and Twitter. Absolutely. I mean, again, it seems very obvious, but maybe there's something you could be doing to be more involved in either of those things, uh, making sure you're staying active on Twitter, engaging with other writers or executives or people in the business and following them and keeping up to date on all the hashtags and stuff that's going around or in Facebook, they've really been pushing it towards groups and groups are honestly one of the things I've felt uh, is most useful in Facebook. You, I've created subgroups for particular hobbies or areas of interests and invited other people from the industry in and I've really made great friends and connections through that. So don't underestimate the power of having, you know, a bunch of friends on Facebook that you can message and catch up with. Absolutely. I think this is where the barriers between sort of uh, who's a, a guild member versus not a guild member, uh, who's a vouch for, not vouch for. I think those lines are being blurred right now in terms of Twitter and accessibility to those higher levels because they are online driving those conversations. So especially on Twitter where, you know, it's a public forum and I think you should engage with those people that you care about. It's not about being mean and uh, and trolling people. It's about engaging in actual conversations and showing that essentially you're a valuable creative person who can engage intellectually and interestingly with those executives and maybe whether it's an executive or writer or whoever it is. And then down the line, they may or may not remember you, but you can build that relationship. Who knows? Maybe you can build it to a point where you DM them to grab a drink. I've done it. I know you've done it as well, Nick. Mm -hmm. That's very doable on Twitter in a way that 10 years ago, it wasn't even a thing. And as for Facebook groups, those are incredible tools in terms of managing people and opportunities and putting them in a place where you can ask questions and get feedback, whether it's your own content. Obviously, we have our own Facebook groups. There's plenty of other Facebook groups out there that are more geared towards the TV industry or the TV business or specific assortments of assistance, especially if you're in industry, be aware of those groups. 
Yeah, just like Alex was saying, I've had a lot of success in just reaching out to other writers who I, I don't know, but I like the show that they're working on or, you know, they're mutual friends or something like that. Uh, and just DMing them on Twitter or sending them a, a tweet and going and grabbing a lunch or a coffee. And then since then, I've made a lot of good friends that way. And even some higher level writers who I didn't even expect would perhaps ever reply to me, I've been able to forge kind of a, a friendship or at least, you know, uh, a line of communication with them because I have approached them and said, oh, man, I really love uh, this particular episode of a show you did. I, I love the work that you did on that. And maybe perhaps ask them for a little piece of advice or whatever. I didn't come to them being like, read my script or staff me on your show. But just forging, again, that genuine connection and relationship, I think is so easy over Twitter these days. Absolutely. And th those are all proactive ways of interacting with people. But there are also opportunities for you to find events and mixers. Uh, the big ones that uh, we did want to mention are all the guild calendars. Uh, I know some people may or may not be in the guild right now, but uh, if you know someone in the guild that love those events, you can invite a plus one. So befriend someone in the guild and maybe you can tag along with them to a guild event or some other kind of uh, AMPTA type event. Yeah, there's always a ton of screenings and Writers Guild Foundation events. Some of them are open to the public, some of them are not. But, you know, if you ask around and if you want to get involved and meet people, those are a really great way. Uh, another one is sort of more like local networking groups. Now, these might be, uh, you know, tracking boards you're a part of and like email groups or those Facebook groups we talked about, especially amongst assistants. And they will often host uh, events and mixers and Facebook events and whatever that you can kind of sign up for and go along to. There's honestly like a limitless amount of them out there. There's too many to even go to. So uh, pick and choose the ones that you think are going to be good and put yourself out there a little bit. Yeah. And then the same idea, there's a lot of those mixers that are more geared towards professionals or uh, TV people like GHRTS is an organization that produces a lot of those mixers. You don't even have to be a member to attend them. Uh, and so it's a great introduction to people in this business that are perhaps more on the business side rather than the running side. But nonetheless, it's great to meet those people. Yeah, there's always panels and presentations and keynote speakers. Uh, if you're interested in animation writing, the Animation Writers Guild Caucus, which is sort of a, a sub-caucus of the WGA, uh, often hosts these, uh, they call them monthly schmoozes, and they will have like a dinner somewhere, whether in Burbank or Mid-City, and they will have a guest speaker who will give a sort of a keynote speech for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes about their career, and then be open to asking questions and mixing and mingling. And uh, yeah, you're totally welcome to to show up and go to those and start meeting people. One other thing that I wanted to mention is just very simple. Sometimes just asking for something will do wonders. Uh, you know, it's the art of asking. If you, especially if you're working as like an assistant or a coordinator or a PA or whatever, some sort of job in the industry, and you're interacting with other folks, you're scheduling meetings for your bosses or whatever it happens to be, just maybe the next day or whatever, shoot that person an email in a, in a separate thread and be like, hey, uh, really great to have met you online. Do you want to grab a drink sometime or whatever? And most people will be open to that. And that's how you're going to start forging these connections. Like, don't be afraid to reach out to people cold and just be like, hey, my name's XYZ. I'm an assistant at this production company. And I really want to meet more people who work in this space. Would you want to grab a coffee sometime? And you'd be surprised just how many people say yes. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are just afraid of asking for something. And I feel like the fear comes because they're afraid of uh, making a bad impression. Or uh, it's not just about just saying no, it's about being remembered or as, oh, it's this person who asked me for something, so now I, I don't really care for that person. But the reality is that we all need to be introduced to other people and, and do things for other people. So if you have the opportunity to be in contact with someone, then you can ask for something, but be genuine about it. It's not about sort of using them for your own purposes. It's about, hey, I want to get to know you as a person. It's not a huge deal to be like, hey, I want to grab a drink with you. You seem very interesting. I'd love to learn more about the way 
where you work or that show that you worked on or how, you know, you break stories or are you a big fan of uh, whiteboards or index cards? I don't know what it is, but you have a reason for why you're contacting that person. Be upfront about it. And uh, maybe it's catching up with someone else. Maybe it's uh, this other friend talked to me about you. You seem very compelling. Whatever the reason, it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah. And the worst case scenario is that they say no, or more than likely than not, they just don't reply or you reschedule drinks forever until you both forget about it. But uh, none, none <laughs> of those things the are going to kill option. you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I've got so many drinks that are, are meant to happen at some point between now and the day I die, but who knows <laughs> when that's going to happen. The day after. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a brutal thought. <laughs> uh, while speaking of uh, drinks and uh, meeting people around town and planning things, what are some of those websites that you use to figure out, okay, where should we go because uh, you live in the valley and I live in Hollywood. So do you mind driving, uh, you know, to my place? <laughs> I mean, so the most common thing people are going to say is like, oh, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Like, where are you at work and where do you live? And then you kind of got to like triangulate a point between their location and destination and your location and destination. And one of the things that I've found very helpful for this is a website called whatshalfway.com. It's literally just that. Uh, and you put in two different points and it will kind of give you a radius of an area that is exactly halfway between those two points. So it's fair for you guys to meet up in this one convenient location instead of forcing someone to drive from Burbank to Santa Monica to come meet you. I've definitely used it uh, myself. One of the most useful things about it is that it gives you options of the kind of venues that you want to go to. So it's not just about bars. It's not just about coffee shops. It's not about restaurants. It's kind of all of the above. And you get to figure out, okay, this is maybe a worthwhile stop to go to. And uh, also uh, in terms of parking, that's another thing to consider is sort of like where is a good place to park if you're going to pick a, a mutual spot to meet at it's always great to find a place that has a parking lot without valet preferably besides that then a place that has some kind of street parking available uh, without permits another really good tool for uh, perhaps if you are the one planning a mixer or trying to get a bunch of people together that's more than just you and one other person is uh, this website called doodle and what that does is allows you to create polls and you can send them out to either, you know, you can get like a shareable link or you can send them to a bunch of different emails and then everybody on there can go in and they can select all of the dates that work for them. And then you've got this nice little pretty grid that lines up and you can see, well, out of the 10 people I've invited, seven of them can make it on Monday and eight can make it on Wednesday, but only three can make it on Thursday. And so you choose the best day that works for the yeah. most people. Can you say poll again? Polls. I think you said Paul's. 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 I love that accent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Doodle is a great tool uh, to schedule things. And especially for when you're figuring something out uh, later on for whether it's for your own, for your bosses, to be honest, you can also use it or maybe an event for a mixer or any kinds of drinks where you want to regroup a bunch of people. It's free and it's very intuitive, which is why we use a lot of the tools that we mentioned in this episode. At the end of the day, you got to be practical about it and you got to find a way to use those tools in the most efficient way possible. You, you can't really waste time. And so those are great sort of micro application tools that do exactly the kind of job that you want out of them. Now, what are some of the websites that you use and that we use to research people, but you know, in a less uh, creepy way than uh, the way I just said? Right. I mean, it might be the fact that you have to look up somebody or their contact information for your boss, or it might just be your own personal interest. You want to look up who worked on this project, you know, what companies do they work for or uh, what shows have they been on, who represents them, whatever it happens to be. 
So the number one for this is IMDb, or specifically IMDb Pro is where you're going to find most of that relevant information, uh, particularly stuff like which management and agency represents somebody or like phone numbers and contact information for production companies. And it's not that hard to get onto IMDb Pro. You can get like a month free trial and you can, I think, subscribe for, you know, it, it is a substantial amount. It might be $10 a month or whatever it happens to be, but it is a incredibly useful tool for the business to kind of see the lay of the land and know who's who. There are a number of much more expensive and professional kind of suites that do this, usually with more uh, thorough information uh, on them that's updated more regularly and isn't open to just uh, the public <laughs> changing it around. Uh, one of the biggest ones is called Studio System. And this it's unlikely that you're going to have this yourself. It might be something that a company you work for has a login for. And it's, it's very quite protected, but it's also um, a really great source of information. There's also another one called In Entertainment, which I think is similar. Yeah, those are definitely interesting tools. Uh, now, I will say, regarding both uh, IMDb Pro or a studio system or Variety Insights or any of those sort of databases that you have to pay entry towards, those are definitely lower in uh, the priority list of what you should be worrying about when you're you know, first starting out or when you're figuring out who's who in this town because those tools cost a lot of money for the amount of content that you're getting out of them right? So figure out other ways of spending that money wisely. Maybe it's more about your craft. Maybe it's more about, you know, getting drinks because uh, I, I don't know how much IMDb Pro costs now. I don't have an IMDb Pro account. I don't need to pay that IMDb Pro account. And honestly, I don't feel like I've ever needed to because either I've worked at places where I had that access or I know people who can give me that access because they work at places that have that access. Uh, and it's not to say that all things being equal, maybe you're going to be finding a useful piece of information on IMDb Pro, but there are other ways that are arguably free to get that kind of information and who's connected to who. So uh, as much as we recommend those systems, I will say that it's not something that should be uh, sort of like a, a must have in terms of everything we've talked about in this episode. Totally. You shouldn't move to LA and the first thing you do is buy a subscription to studio system <laughs> to look up who all of the Netflix executives are to try and get a meeting with them Ooh, or whatever. That would be I think cool. this is more of really like a sort of like more of a mid-level, uh, mid-career kind of level uh, resource when you might be planning, well, I've got this feature that I want to take out and my manager is going to put it to some people, but I also really want to go and explore and see who are the other production companies who have made movies like this and I want their contact information so I can email a coordinator there or whatever it happens to be. Ask your managers about if they have access to Studio System or what you can do with it. The best way of using those tools is getting access to them in a way that benefits you as opposed to just spending money. Studio System, like you said, is very closed. It's only if you work at, let's say, CAA or specific production companies or studios and networks that you are going to even be able to access that. So if you're not in those places, then it behooves you to befriend someone who is in those places and talk to them about, hey, do you mind looking up this one person? I would love to grab drinks with them or I'd love to know who they're rep by. And to that idea of being repped and, and finding out who's who in this industry, on the running side, a couple of tools that not many people know about is the first thing is a more recent thing. The Writers Guild has that great system that they started because of the ATA fight. So that's a great tool if you're in the guild. If you're not in the guild, again, befriend someone in the guild and uh, find that tool. But 
publicly, if you're not in the guild, and this is something that everybody can access, on their website, you're able to search a writer's name and figure out their credits and also where they're repped at. Now, it doesn't feature every single guild member for privacy reasons and uh, people you know, opting in or out of uh, that system, but there are a lot of writers, especially lower level writers that are on the system. So it's a great way to sort of um, get more information in terms of researching, oh, this is how they rose up the ranks is through this script. And this is kind of the quality script that I need to be at to sort of reach this level. This person was repped at this place because they got at this show, whatever. You can make those connections based on this tool that not many people use, but is uh, your availability. Absolutely. And another almost obvious one is LinkedIn. I personally kind of hate the website and I've never bothered to go and make an account <laughs> because you get all these connection requests from people and the, the endless emails of like, this. Per- especially if you don't have an account, you get all these emails being like, someone wants to connect with you, make an account. And I don't know, it's just frustrating. But what I will do is just kind of Google someone's name and LinkedIn and then get the, the quick look at what what's their current title and position and where they are before the little splash screen pops up and tells me to subscribe. Yeah, that's actually probably the one way I use LinkedIn is exactly that, just Googling someone, (laughs) finding the credits. Side note, there are Chrome slash other browser extensions that remove that overlay. Remember, if you have Chrome, there's something called I think it's called remove the overlay or something equivalent. It's a little button that is on uh, on your toolbar. And if you click it, it removes the overlay. That way you can actually see what's going on behind the overlay without having a LinkedIn account, which uh, who has a LinkedIn account in TV at this point? I mean, I do, but it's not really to use it. Right. I think it's more for perhaps people on the business side and the executive ranks and the studios and that sort of thing. We'll be using that. And then, you know, recruiters can approach them and, and whatever it happens to be. But I think it's much less common for creatives and writers to be using LinkedIn in a real way. Absolutely. And let's move on to information, gathering information, being aware of what's going on in the industry. Obviously, the big tool that you have at your disposal that is free are the different trades, whether it's a variety, Hollywood Reporter, deadlines. I personally prefer The Hollywood Reporter. Honestly, The Hollywood Reporter has a lot of content that is writer and creative uh, driven. They have a lot of those roundtables every Emmy or Oscar season uh, with all the, you know, the actors, the directors, the writers. Um, So that's always interesting. Now, the only reason why I use trades is to get the basic information of what's going on. It's not about, uh, you know, getting a perspective or an opinion, especially when it comes to like guild related content. But in terms of just the bare bones information of like the this show got picked up. This showrunner is staffed there. This studio is merging with this other studio. Uh, Disney's acquiring the entire world. All this <laughs> different information, you know, you're going to get them through the trades. Yeah, I think on a base level, it's always useful to stay abreast of what's happening in the industry by monitoring the headlines and seeing what's going on. Now, a couple of things to note about this. Firstly, anything that's announced in deadline has already been known about secretly in the industry for probably three months before that. Uh, so it's not like you're getting the cutting edge of the news. By the time a show is announced that it's you know in development or, or whatever, it's probably already staffed. So um, just be aware that you know seeing something in deadline, uh, you're not necessarily going to be able to jump right in and take action on that. Yeah, I did want to mention something to to that idea. I don't think the fact that it was announced being staffed was true 10 years ago. I definitely agree that now is the case, especially when you look at OTT and cable shows. As soon as a Netflix show is announced, that show has probably already entered production. That is why it was announced. I know on my show, when publicly Netflix announced the renewal of the, of the show I was on for the second season, that was when production was starting and the room had already wrapped at that point. And the same thing holds true for pretty much any cable slash OTT shows being announced. It is great to go to your reps and be like, hey, next time be 
on the lookout for that because hopefully they should be on the lookout for that before the trades know about it. But either way, you should be aware that those rooms are probably staffed and they're entering production. It's not really an announcement that now we're starting. It's more an announcement that now we're officially producing the show as opposed to writing it. Right. And perhaps more on the network side when they're announcing things like pilot pickups, that's a little more timely and you might be able to slide in there uh, before the, the show actually goes and talk to your reps about that. But certainly like Alex says, most shows, you know, production's either started or the room's wrapped by the time they're really willing to make stuff public. That said, it's still useful to be keeping an eye on all of those things. The other thing to know about the trades is that they are quite partisan. They are beholden to certain interest groups, which has been quite noticeable with the whole WGA ATA thing. Now, these these publications get their information and their sources largely from places like agencies. So it's in their best interests to be uh, presenting a positive image of the agencies and doing what they want for them. So they're going to be naturally slanted against the Writers Guild and the action they're being taken against the agencies, etc. So just take anything they say with a grain of salt, like Alex said, especially about opinion. The last thing to know is that a lot of these announcements and things like that are essentially paid for by companies uh, as a method of uh, PR or promotion, like so-and-so gets a promotion to agent or this company just picked up this hot new book. They are deliberately putting that information out there to garner buzz and interest, and it's not necessarily journalistic neutrality. Oh, 100%. I think the the point you just made is a great one. Uh, trades are good in terms of being kept abreast of generally what's going on in the history. It's not really a reference book or uh, something that you should be scrolling. And I know it can be addictive in the same way that Twitter or uh, Facebook is addictive. It's just sort of like refreshing, getting more updates on what's going on around me. I feel less alone. I have like information. I know what's happening, but it can distract you from the goal of your career as a TV writer, whether you're trying to get staffed, whether you are already staffed and working on your script, whatever the case may be, don't be distracted unless it's again, pilot season and you need to know, you know, information minute by minute outside of that very specific moment, most times the trades are not vital to your career outside of a general awareness. So don't spend your entire day on the websites. Yeah. And definitely don't get caught up in comparing yourself to other people and being like, well, this guy just came out of film school and he's got his own show or whatever it happens to be. That's, it's never going to be helpful for you. All right. Lastly, we got to talk about the podcasts that we use, that we listen to, that we enjoy, that are all about the TV writing business. Yeah. So the first one is, uh, I guess, a sister podcast of ours, the Screenwriters Rant Room. Shout out to Hillier Guest, who's uh, had us on as a guest, and we've had him on as well. He's been on our 100th episode panel. Uh, those guys over there are always kind of staying very up to date on what's happening around the business and providing really insightful kind of discussions and roundtables and great guests talking about, yeah, in particular, the TV industry, but also features. Yeah. And, uh, and to that idea of sort of being aware of what's uh, going on in the industry, are a couple of podcasts that are worth listening to, The Business with Kim Masters and Industry Standard with Barry Katz. It's kind of like the podcast version of the trades, perhaps much more, I don't want to say objective <laughs> because they're not objective, but they're much more interesting and are relevant to creatives in a way that I feel like the trades are very business oriented and those are more specific to the ins and outs of what's going on. Yeah. So like the Kim Masters one is really more of a like, here's the latest news that happened in Hollywood. And maybe they have a little interview with the director or something. Whereas Industry Standard with Barry Katz is much more of like an interview focused thing where he brings on a guest and goes through their entire career leading up to some particular moment. And, and I guess there's another one called The Moment with Brian Cobham. And that's all about like the moment that changed someone's career as well, if you like those kind of creator centric interview formats. 
and one other one uh, that I've heard about, and I haven't really, I think I may have listened to one or two episodes. It's called The Treatment with Elvis Mitchell. It's another KCRW podcast like The Business. Uh, this one, I guess, is more around features, and they really dive in in depth into interviewing the creators, a little bit like the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. Yeah, and uh, another one on that note is the Rise Guild Foundation podcast that has a lot of recordings of their live events. Now, sadly, it's not quite the level of ATX, which I believe publishes all of uh, its panels online. And I wish the Brazil Foundation would publish all of its events online because they have tremendous, uh, you know, level of expertise and experience in those panels and they have awesome content to distribute. Uh, But definitely check those out. And for those Australian writers of you out there who are wondering what you can kind of get for a more local take on the TV business and industry, uh, there's the Australian Screenwriters Podcast that's hosted by Duncan. I've been a guest on there before, but there's also a bunch of other great Australian writers and especially TV folks that he sits down and interviews with. And I think it's really, honestly, one of the only podcasts in Australia that does that in terms of the, the business side of things and going through people's careers. And then there's also the Open Channel podcast. Open Channel is kind of a, an organization in Australia that is focused around the screen industry and they often hold panels and events. And so they will have, uh, like the Writers Guild Foundation, recordings of some of their events and masterclasses and things like that that they will share. And there's the Screen Australia podcast, which is, I guess, a little bit like our version of the business. But Screen Australia is the industry funding body that provides uh, development funding and stuff to creatives. And they will update things on their latest round of like this thing got funded and uh, here's a cool project with this Australian director and all that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, another podcast that we wanted to mention is Happier in Hollywood by Liz Craft and Sarah Fain. Sarah Fain and Liz Craft are amazing writers. They've had a, an awesome career. And this podcast is less about, you know, the business in the sense of the trades and news and what's going on, but more sort of a mindset uh, podcast about how to handle Hollywood and how to handle this industry. Uh, it's very upbeat. It's very positive. It's very affirmative. Uh, I definitely recommend it, especially in this industry that can get you down sometimes. Uh, it's one of the more positive and interesting podcasts out there by uh, Liz Craft and Seraphine. And it's also worth re-mentioning a couple of ones that we perhaps already covered in the craft side, just because they do dip over into the business side of the industry as well. So one of those is Third and Fairfax, which is the Writers Guild podcast. Uh, there's also the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, which has six million episodes by now. And, you know, if there's any particular writer you're interested in, I'm sure you can find them on one of his things. There's the very obvious script notes, John August, Craig Mazin, the uh, the granddaddy of all screenwriting podcasts, <laughs> Children of Tendu with Javi and Jose, which I believe they, they just released a new episode finally after a yeah, while. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're doing their final episode of Children of Tendu later this year. The, the latest episode that you were referring to is a sit down with the Res Guild uh, director. So that's definitely worth checking out. And of course, uh, to live in dialogue in LA, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, is another great snapshot of some some cool classes going on and great guests. Wow, that is a lot of content to digest in one episode. Yeah, let's uh, probably take someone the rest of their career to get through all of this stuff. They'll be so busy absorbing the resources, they'll be 90 years old, and they'll turn around and be like, all right, I'm ready to start in Hollywood. (laughs) I mean, that is why I think uh, we mentioned a a few times across this podcast, you know, take things as they go. You don't have to consume everything at once. It's about sort of building your career and building your knowledge base as time goes on. It's not about sort of knowing everything at once at the same time, because nobody is omniscient in this business. We all have our failures. We 
all know, we all have our biases. We all know certain things and not other things. It's about leaning into what interests you and what doesn't interest you, but at the same time, being aware of what's missing from your career and sort of correcting that. Yeah. And don't be afraid to not know something, to ask questions and to learn from other people. That's why you're here is to kind of like absorb the business and, and get a foothold in there and then really understand what's going on around you. But you don't, like Alex said, need to come in knowing everything from day one, you will learn along the way. And before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get cheat sheets, exclusive content, and merch. And we can keep producing an awesome show like this one for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes as well as the reference of all the resources we just talked about at paperteam.co slash 146. As always, I'm on Twitter at DVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be catching up with our paper team mentee, Paul Chang, who recently got staffed on a new Disney animated show. And he'll share his experience in the writer's room, as well as all the advice he's taken along the way. So we'll see you next week.